Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. Let me call out to my boys, Randy and Jason Sklar, Nelly and the Saint Lunatics, Pam from the office, John Ham. your blues are Stanley Cup champions. No correction. The Saint Bleeping Lewis, Bleeping Blues, Bleeping One, Bleeping the Bleeping Stanley Bleeping Cup. Bleep it. Seriously, I'm not sure what was more amazing. The Blues winning game seven last night in Boston or the uncensored celebration that followed that enormous win. And then all of his teammates. With the St. Louis Blues, signed as a free agent from the Vegas Golden Knights this offseason by general manager Doug Armstrong. We do apologize that there is some exultation language that got on, and we have taken measures uh, that that microphone is not turned on now. Yeah, too late for that, Doc. Is that what they're calling that now? Exultation language? And no apology necessary. That was awesome. The greatest trophy in sports, the greatest trophy presentation in sports, and the greatest lack of censorship in sports history. That was awesome. About as awesome as what the Blues did last night. About as awesome as they were last night because they did it. They bleeping did it. This crew... Was up three games to two in that series. They had a chance to close it out on their home ice on Sunday. Instead, they got worked. They lost game six at home 5-1 on Sunday. That was supposed to be a blown opportunity. That was supposed to be the night that they spent the rest of their lives regretting. The night where it all got away. Because last night was just a matter of the Bruins showing up, right? Showing up, flexing a little, running out a few of the cities, formerly great athletes from other sports, and then skating around with the cup and throwing yet another world championship in all of our faces. You know how Boston felt about it. Not the players. Not the players and not the team, but the city of Boston and their fans. You know how they felt about it. They knew it. The cup was theirs. They knew that. They assumed that. They came to party. Yeah, except St. Louis came to wreck shop and wreck that party. Boston rolled out a bunch of celebrities. The Blues had Layla Anderson. And they had Jordan Bennington. Holy crap. This guy was amazing. Especially in that first period when they had to have it. There was one-way traffic at the start of that game. And it was all right in Bennington's face. I mean, like, there's tilting the ice. And then there's what the Bruins were doing last night. It looked like it was only a matter of time before he broke. But the rookie stood in, and the rookie stood on his head, and then this. Play to the blue line. Petrangelo holds. Can't shoot. Waits. Straight away. Bowmeister. Slap shot. He scores! Jay Bowmeister with the puck deflected in front. Ryan O'Reilly might have had a piece of it. 
Oh, he did. He did. Blues Radio. Ryan O'Reilly, if you need him. Ryan O'Reilly scoring in a Stanley Cup final game. That is Ryan O'Reilly scoring in his fourth straight Stanley Cup final game. Last guy to do that, St. Louis Blues legend Wayne Gretzky. Except Ryan O'Reilly had scored just three goals in his first 22 playoff games. And now he and the great one are part of a two-member club for guys who scored in four straight Stanley Cup final games. Pretty badass. That's how you win a Stanley Cup. That's how you shut a crowd up on the road in Game 7. I'm going to survive. The first period would have been great. To survive it with a one nothing lead would be amazing. But then to do this right before the horn is about the best thing that could ever happen to the city of St. Louis. Schwartz at the red line. He'll dump it over the blue line. Stick candle into the corner. Leave it. Petrangelo. He scores! Alex Petrangelo! A backhand shot under the bar! I mean, seriously, about the best thing that ever happened to St. Louis. The city. That was an amazing, amazing moment. Boston's Brad Marchand. Got caught in no man's land. St. Louis made him pay. Two shots, two goals. Now, I'm not going to say that they should have called the game after that, but they could have because they handled their business in the second period. And then the third. Then in the third period, you knew Boston was going to throw everything they had in the final 20. There was no way St. Louis could keep Boston locked up for 60 minutes at home in a game seven, right? Then again, this is a team that was dead last in the NHL a few months back. Now they're the champs. I know that point has been hammered to death, but it can't be said enough. It's amazing. That does not happen. It's not supposed to happen, but these guys made it happen from dead last to one of the best stories ever. It's amazing. They were in dead last in January, and if they weren't dead then, they were this past Sunday, right? But then again, almost none of this makes sense. You know, like the fact that they were 6-7 and seven at home in the postseason, but 10-3 and three on the road with a guy who is technically still an interim head coach and a goalie who is definitely a rookie. In other words, there's Tough, and then there's St. Louis Blues Tough. And then with Bennington and the Blues facing the most pressure-packed 20 minutes of their lives. In the third, they attack again. They had a couple of good looks to make it 3-0 and end it, but couldn't quite finish it off. Couldn't quite seal the deal until they did. Here's Tarasenko centering to Shen. He scores! 3-0 St. Louis. And Braden Shen from Vladimir Tarasenko has given the Blues another goal. And then they chased it finally with this. Perron down the left wing. He'll go into the corner with it. Stick handle off the wall. He centers. They shoot. They score! Zach Sanford, the Salem, Massachusetts native, just put the Blues on top four to nothing. And I got to think the party's going to start bubbling in St. Louis. Four nothing. Walked right into Boston in Game 7, and punched them in the face over and over again. And then they walked out legends. Freaking legends. Yeah, Boston got a goal back to make it 4-1, but it was over. The St. Louis Blues are Stanley Cup champions. Stanley bleeping cup bleeping champions. And they did it in the toughest, hardest, most badass way imaginable. They go on the road and they dominate Boston in their house. And then they partied with the cup afterwards. 
And about the only thing that went Boston's way last night was the chance to boo Gary Bettman. And even that was a little bit subdued. But there was nothing quiet about the Blues skating around the ice with their cup. Those guys were letting F-bombs fly. Again, exultation language is how Doc Emmerich described it. It was perfect. Nobody should be apologizing for that. And they made sure that Layla, the legend, got her moment with the cup on the ice. And if that wasn't the coolest moment ever, I don't know what is. So, Alvy, one more time. A little Gloria on the way out. Because going into Boston and punking them that way for their first cup win ever in a Game 7 situation is the very definition of badassery. How you living, St. Louis? How you living this morning, St. Louis? And one thought about the NHL. How great is the NHL? And it's parody. The season after a first year, Vegas expansion team made the Stanley Cup final. A team in St. Louis who was dead last in January is now hoisting the cup. In other words, fan bases throughout that league have got hope. It is so awesome for that sport. Some exultation language that got on. And some exultation language that got on. We are joined by John Lynch. John, how is life for you right now, and how has the offseason treated you? What's going on, John? Uh, what's going on, Jim? It's good to talk to you, um, and things are good. We're, uh, we're kind of wrapping things up for the offseason today. We have a... Uh, um, a, a little team barbecue, family barbecue. Everybody's getting together, and then uh, I'm popping down the coast to San Diego, getting down there for for this. The, the, the truly the only time off in the NFL uh, is about this period for for a couple weeks here as uh, as we start to uh, get near to the season. So looking forward to some time away, um, and really happy with the work we got done this off season. Hey there, are you doing a repair that needs a special tool? Then O'Reilly Auto Parts will make it easy for you with our loaner tool program. Over 80 specialized loaner tools are available, and we're sure to have a tool in stock to help you get that job done right. Purchase the needed parts, put down a deposit on the loaner tool, return that tool in its original condition, and then receive a full refund. It is that easy. O'Reilly Auto Parts. Better parts, better prices every day. O'Reilly Auto Parts. Good to talk to you too, John. I appreciate that. I was going to ask you, the minicamp did wrap up yesterday. So overall, how pleased were you with the work that was done and where your team is right now? Really pleased. I, I, I think, um, you know, you always have to, uh, to make the best of every situation. Uh, we have a lot of room for improvement. Uh, you know, we, we, uh, we had a disappointing uh, season, uh, and there's a lot of reasons for that. But the ultimate, uh, you know, this is a bottom line business, and, and we didn't win enough games. And so there was a lot to do. I'm uh, really pleased with the acquisitions we made, both in the free agent market and through the draft. Um, but then there's, there's work. You have to get better. You have to develop your players. And um, we had a lot of guys out this, this off season, so that's opportunity for other guys, and guys have taken advantage of that. And, um, you know, the good news is that uh, we're going to be healthy uh, for training camp. A lot of guys, Quan Alexander, Jason Verrett, some of these guys coming back, and uh, we're, we're going to uh, be really excited, Jimmy Garoppolo, obviously, to have a full complement of players as we head into uh, to uh, training camp this year. John Lynch joining us. Yeah, it was a tough year, John, last year, but you were pretty banged up. You lost Jimmy Garoppolo. When you look at him right now and his recovery process, how does he look to you? He looks really good. Um, you know, I think, um, you know, there's a ton of monotony in that recovery. Um, but if there's any blessing in having your, your, your running back, uh, Jarek McKinnon, who we got last year in free agency, go out with an ACL uh, before the season is, you know, is the fact that Jimmy had a partner to go through this with. And, and Jimmy and um, 
and Jet McKinnon really, I think, drove and pushed and competed against each other in that rehab. And we're also a support system. And, you know, I think the thing with those injuries, um, having been around this game for a long time, as much as it is a physical grind, it's a mental grind. Uh, you're away from the thing you love most. You're away from your team. Uh, very monotonous days of doing the same thing over and over. But when you're going through it with someone, I think it makes it a little better. And we're pleased to have both those guys back. And they're, they're both looking really good. 49ers GM John Lynch, my guest. You know, John, one of the things that you talked about also is the fact that Garoppolo challenged himself a lot during the time that he was off in terms of how he goes about getting better. Kyle Shanahan and challenged him to improve from the neck up. So what kind of work did he do in that regard, and have you noticed a difference? Well, Jimmy, is as, as high as we are on Jimmy, I mean, the, the one thing we knew is that this is a guy who hasn't played a ton of football, um, you know, and so we had to find a way, and that was the challenge. How do you gain experience when, when you can't play? And so we, we tried to come up with as many different ways as we could to stimulate him, and I think Kyle and his staff did a – Tremendous job. Uh, Kyle's dad took part in that. We had a, a great tool and that Kyle's dad was here watching our team play as a, as a dad of our head coach. And, and we said, let's put him, let's put him to use. And, and so they had long film sessions, just trying to put him through situations uh, to challenge him mentally to learn this system. It's a, it's a complex system. There's a lot of verbiage to it. We kind of got force fed his first year. The second year, it, you know, I think he had a better grasp. But we needed to continue that uh, that that growth um, in, in that respect. The talent is there. He's a he's an immensely talented player. Uh, we had to find a way to to grow, and I I'm, I really commend Jimmy and and Kyle and and the staff for the ways different ways in which they did that. And and um, our hope is that that really uh, translates to the field this season. Hey John, if you've got a resource in Kyle's dad and you want to take advantage of that, I see that that makes perfect sense. However, did your dad did Big John say, "Now wait a minute, if you're going to let that guy bring his dad around, what about me? You got a resource right here, son." He reminds me all the time of all the little league champs. He the little league championships he's won in both football and baseball. And, <laughs> I love um, it. Uh, I like that. <laughs> I love it, man. Big John I'm better sure be there. To get in it, Big John in better be year. there. He better be there. We're talking to John Lynch. Now, John, you're you've always been a real process oriented guy yourself. I'm curious in terms of the work and doing the homework. I know you yourself are always looking to learn and improve. How different are you as a GM right now as compared to when you first arrived? I think I'm a lot more, um, you know, just versed in, in the day-to-day duties uh, and responsibilities. Our college scouting staff is in, um, has been in this, this, this past week. And understanding, I think, when you first get on this job, coming from a different background like I, you've got the entire organization to learn. And so you re- you're relying on other folks to try to, hey, all right, you're in charge of the college scouts, let's go. And the draft process has been really pure, but I think now we can start really zeroing in. And I feel like in year three, you can zero in on what's the challenges that those guys through. What are the challenges, um, you know, that college scouts encounter each and every day? And how do we make ourselves better and really focusing in on the nitty gritty of that stuff? And and uh, I think that's fun, um, you know, because I think our, our our organization is running really well. There's tremendous synergy between the coaching staff and personnel. So now you can start focusing on specific things where you feel like there's room for improvement. And that's what you try to do in this league. Uh, you know, we're, it's, a, it's a level playing field. And so you have to find ways. Where can we separate ourselves from everybody else? And it's, it's in, the, in the details, in the, in the, in the work ethic. And 
um, in trying to find a way to be a little bit better than everybody else. And so that's been been a fun part of uh, of this, the, you know, my evolution on this job. John Lynch joining us for a few more moments. In terms of work ethic, as I mentioned off the top, you are a Super Bowl champion. The St. Louis Blues won the Stanley Cup last night. The NBA Finals going on right now. You've been very clear that bringing a championship to the 49ers is your goal. What's that moment feel like when it all pays off and you've got that trophy in your hand? Is there any way to describe that? Oh, it's so good. It is so good. And, uh, you know, I think back, I'm getting the chills talking about it right now, but, uh, you know, for, for me, I think the, the, the story, I think for anybody who wins it, the story is about that journey. And the, the journey for us in Tampa was uh, that I, I came there in 93 when it was really the, the worst franchise in all of sports. And a, a, a group of young players got together and said, hey, we're going to change this. And we're led by people like Tony Dungy and Rich McKay. Then John Gruden came in and we ultimately did it. So, And to do so in my hometown, uh, in the stadium where I used to watch Charger games uh, in front of all my family and my you know, at late in the game, my family's down there with me. I, you just can't put it into words how special that is. And here, the situation's a little different. The, the the organization was down, but this is a place that knows what it's all about to win championships. The standard's incredibly high, um, having won five of them. And uh, it's our job to try to add to that. And that's what we work for each and every day. It's nice that there's a blueprint here, but we have to go earn it ourselves. We can't just rely on the fact that, hey, they've won five before. we got to go earn that. And uh, uh, that's what we, we come to work every day trying to do. And the type of players we're bringing in, uh, that's their goal uh, as well. And, and uh, you do it by just trying to get a little bit better each day. And that's how you have success in this league. So, John, let me ask you about one more guy before you go. I had a chance to sit down with George Kittle during the week before Super Bowl. I could not have been more impressed. He's coming off one of the all-time great seasons for a tight end. He was a fifth-round draft pick. When did you first sense that he could be something really special? Well, um, you know, I, I, we, we really felt like we had, uh, you know, we, we watched C.J. Beathard, uh, who we drafted in the third round that year a lot, and in watching C.J., uh, George had been on our on our uh, on our scout, scout had some great reports on him, um, but in watching CJ, he kept popping up, and they didn't throw the football a whole lot at Iowa, and so that probably hit him a little bit. And uh, you know, he on on film in Iowa, he was wearing a forty number, and and he's a little bit of a goofy looking athlete at times. His legs are flying everywhere. But then the guy runs a four-five-two, and he has some movement ability that's special. And the one thing we noticed, and we still see it to this day, just yesterday, he, he caught the ball, and he is so much faster with the ball in his hand. Uh, and typically, it's the other way. And you know, it's actually one thing that Kyle's challenged him on. Hey, you run so fast with the ball in your hand. Start running that way with your routes. That's how you can be better. And George is the type of guy you give him a challenge, he's going to go own that. And this offseason, he came back in tremendous shape. Uh, the routine he's developed is, is, uh, just unbelievable. Um, it's, it's one of the best I've ever seen. He's just a routine oriented guy who's, who's grinding each and every day. And he's a special dude and a special player is he's going to have a tremendous career for us. That is good stuff. He is a Super Bowl champ, four time, all pro and nine time pro bowl selection. Again, inducted into the ring of honor in both Tampa Bay and Denver. The Niners open up at Tampa, September 8th, GM John Lynch, my guest. John, so great to get caught up. I really appreciate it. Good luck or have a great time in San Diego this weekend. I know that's well-deserved time off, and it's always good to have you, John. Hey, thanks a lot, Jim. Always great being with you. Hey, Boston, back to you for a minute. How you living right about now? Actually, don't answer. I already know the answer to it myself. Not that well. Because losing Game 7 at home is brutal. 
And it's painful, especially when you just assume the win, especially when some of you just became Bruin fans earlier this week to gravy train your way to a title. Now you're waking up dazed and confused because Boston is not supposed to have nights like that. And you're desperately looking for the receipt so you can return that Bruins sweater that you bought on Monday to prove how much the Bruins mean to you and how much they've always meant to you for the past week or so. So now you're out there feverishly tweeting out a pick of Tom Brady and his rings to make yourself feel better and to prove that last night didn't really hurt that much. But it did. You know it did. I know it did. You thought you had that. And you blew it. I get it. But yesterday was not just a bad day. Not just a bad day because of the Bruins, but also for the Celtics. That said, there is no reason for you to kill Jason Tatum on Twitter the way that you did after he celebrated the Blues winning with this tweet. Check out Jason Tatum. He tweeted, quote, St. Louis forever. It's his hometown. He was hyped. Of course, Boston fans handled that about as well as you expect them to, immediately smashing the reply button and screaming, trade him. Trade him to New Orleans now. Give me Anthony Davis for this guy. And quote, hope you're in New Orleans next year. Yeah, that's smart. Because trading him just because he rooted for his hometown hockey team, that's a great idea, a really great idea, and a really great basketball idea. Oh, and about this notion of trading for Anthony Davis. Yeah, you're not going to like this either. I would not get too attached to that idea. Because Rich Paul, AD's agent, has made it very clear Davis does not want to go to Boston. He wants nothing to do with y'all. He made that very clear. How clear? This clear. Paul told SI, quote, They can trade for him, but it'll be for one year. I mean, if the Celtics traded for Anthony Davis, we would go there and we will abide by our contractual obligations and we would go into free agency in 2020. I've stated that to them. But in the event that he decides to walk away and you give away assets, don't blame Rich Paul. End quote. Yeah, you can't make it much clearer than that. But then again, knowing Danny Ainge. And knowing how the market will work this year, there is a distinct possibility that Boston still goes ahead and tries to make that move for Davis. Because they know that the places he does want to go, like the Lakers, cannot afford to waste another year waiting for Davis. And that pretty much no star wants to actually go where he wants to go. And sometimes they actually want to stay when they get there. Like Paul George, maybe even Kawhi Leonard. Oh, and then there's that part about how bringing in Anthony Davis would give Kyrie Irving a reason to stay. But then there's the news that Kyrie won't opt in with the Celtics, which is not a surprise, and the news that he's gone over to Rock Nation as his agency, which is a surprise. And then, if you want to get out your red string and your bulletin board, and fully connect the conspiracy theories, Rock Nation was founded, of course, by Jay-Z. Jay-Z is a former part owner of the Nets. But wait, there's more. The president of Rock Nation is Michael Yormark. His twin brother, Brett, is CEO of the Nets. So, the moment all of that came down, everyone pretty much photoshopped Kyrie into a Nets jersey and called it a day. 
What I'm saying is, bad day for Boston. Kyrie opts out, changes agents, pretty much packs his bags. Rich Paul tells the world, don't trade for AD because it'll only be a one-year rental. Jason Tatum hypes the Blues, and the Bruins lose the cup on home ice. Bad day for Boston. Let me talk to you about my pals at Vivid Seats. Vivid Seats is an online event ticket marketplace dedicated to providing fans of live entertainment with experiences that will last a lifetime. With Vivid Seats, you can watch your favorite teams and artists perform in person. Nothing better than that. Vivid Seats helps you find the seats to all of your favorite live events, including sports, concerts, theater, and more. And Vivid Seats offers amazing prices and easy purchasing. All Vivid Seats confirm orders are backed by 100% guaranteed. And Vivid Seats, of course, is the presenting sponsor of Smack Off 25. Make a memory that lasts a lifetime. Let Vivid Seats help you get to your favorite live event. Vivid Seats. Dylan Windler is my guest. Dylan, good to have you on. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Doing great. Listen, we're about one week away from the draft, and you've been going through the draft evaluation process, right, working out with teams. First things first, what has the entire experience been like? Is this something you can enjoy and have fun with, or is it just part of the job? Um, you know, it's, it's definitely a grind, uh, this process. You know, after the combine, um, getting ready up until the draft, uh, you know, you're on, the, you're on the road for about a month straight, going from team to team. Um, some days you have a day off, some days you, you know, you do a back to back. So, um, it's, it's definitely a tough process as far as physically and, and also mentally, you know, it can be stressful at times, um, just going in and out and trying to mentally prepare yourself for each workout. But, um, you know, you try to have fun with it. Uh, you know, sometimes that's hard cause you know, obviously it's a job, you're, it's a job interview each and every day. So, um, it can be stressful, but, you know, try to the best you can have fun with it. Dylan Windler joining us. All right, so if we were to go back a little bit to high school in Indianapolis, because you were, by all accounts, a really good golfer. You were routinely winning events. What was your golf game like at that point? And early on, were you actually thinking that maybe golf might be your focus? Yeah, no doubt. Um, uh, like, early on in high school, uh, my first two years of high school, uh, I was honestly probably more focused on golf than I was basketball. Um Going into high school, I kind of had to make a decision on what I wanted to focus on, uh, whether it was golf tournaments in the summer or, you know, going all in with a AAU team. So early on, my first two summers, I actually decided to do the golf route. So, um, you know, I was in a golf tournament every weekend uh, throughout the entire summer. You know, I was focusing on that. I was, you know, trying to get offers to go to college to play golf. And, um, you know, I still obviously played high school basketball. Um, I was getting better each and every year and, you know, started to get a little taller uh, and had a really good junior season. Uh, So, you know, I was was thinking, you know, I want to try to get on AU team, kind of see what opportunities I can give myself there. And um, I got, I was fortunate enough to get on a good AU team and, um, you know, I was able to get, you know, 20 mid-major offers in, in one weekend. And, you know, really from there, it was, um, kind of a no-brainer for me. That's kind of where I wanted to go, and that was the path I wanted to take. And, uh, you know, I didn't really look back from there. Dylan Windler joining us. Now, in terms of that AAU team, we're talking about Indiana Elite, and that's a program that produced guys like Eric Gordon, the Plumleys, the Zellers. It's a team that's loaded. So how much action were you seeing when you first joined, and then what was that experience like? Yeah, for sure. Um, it was a, a tough experience for me at first. Um, you know, I was fortunate to get on that team to be able to get those opportunities to be seen. But 
uh, like you said, there's some, there were some really good players on my team, and uh, they'd been together for a long time. And, you know, it was my first year stepping in. So uh, early on, you know, I was like the seventh or eighth man on the team. I, I came off the bench. You know, I didn't really get a lot of playing time all the time. Um, so, you know, I was just trying to stick through it and, and you know, stay strong and just do what I could to, to um, you know, show myself in a good light. But uh, there was one weekend where some of the guys got invited to an Adidas camp. So um, I got the opportunity to start and I played, you know, a lot of minutes that weekend we ended up winning the tournament and uh you know i went from having zero division one offers to, to to about 15 or 20 in one weekend alone so um my recruiting process was definitely it happened all very fast and um so it was it wasn't a very long process for me at all that's wild i mean that's actually pretty heady you got to keep yourself ready because you get the opportunity you make the most of it you win the tournament and then you get all those offers in a single weekend and then ultimately you committed to play at belmont so what was it about that school and that program that made you feel like that was the right place uh yeah so they had been in contact with me um previously in high school about my sophomore year they come they came and saw me uh practice and work out at my high school so I'd been in contact with them a little bit before, but they never actually offered me until uh, the summer after. So uh, I know them a little bit, so I decided to take a, a visit there, um, you know, just tour the campus, you know, talk to the coaches a little bit, get to know some of the guys on the team. And um, just from the jump, it was it felt like it was a really good fit for me. Um, you know, the, the, as far as, you know, the way they play, you know, they had a winning tradition. I wanted to be a part of a winning culture. Um, you know, all the guys on the team were great. Um, the campus was awesome. The school was great uh, in a great city. So uh, it all kind of just fell in line for, with me, and I thought it was a good fit as far as basketball-wise. So um, I actually, from the time I got the offer to when I committed, it was only about a, a month and a half. So I jumped on it pretty quick. Dylan Windler joining us, the NBA draft coming up in about a week. You know, you made the point that a lot of guys do get offers from big-time schools, and then they end up sitting on the bench for four years because it's not necessarily a good fit. So if you were to give advice to young players, what's your message? Is it all about the right fit and trusting that the league will ultimately find you if you find the right fit? Yeah, no doubt. Uh, I've said that time and time again throughout this process. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a good example of it. You know, obviously wasn't highly recruited, but I found a really good fit for myself. Um, you know, I was able to develop my game and, and flourish in this system. Um, and, you know, and some guys, you know, probably more talented and, and have more upside than me coming out of high school and um, maybe put themselves in not as great a position and um, maybe, you know, didn't get to play as much or even maybe they played and they were limited to what, you know, what they could really do just because the the system that they were in. So um, it's really important, you know, to find a really good fit for yourself, um, not to just go to a, a big name school because you got to offer from them or, um, you know, listen to what other people are telling you to do or just because, you know, maybe they're alumni from there. They want you to go there for certain different reasons. You really got to ultimately, you know, really, um, you know, focus on yourself. And you, it's kind of a time to be selfish and uh, just because you got to look what's best for your future and ultimately finding that best fit uh, is going to do that. And, like I said, the scouts are going to find you regardless of where you're at. I mean, they're finding guys overseas, so I'm pretty sure they can find um, guys in mid-majors comes down to it. To me, that's great advice. That's a really, really good point. And in terms of the right fit, part of that is the right coach. You had a guy in Rick Bird who is an absolute legend as a head coach. He announced his retirement in April after 33 years and more than 800 wins. So what is it about him that made him special as a head coach, and what kind of an impact did he have on you? Uh, yeah, obviously he was a, a heck of a coach. I mean, you got to be a great coach to get, you know, over 800 wins. Um, you know, he had a great time at Belmont in his years there and he kind of built the program up from nothing, you know, going from NAI division two, all the way up to 
um, being a, a powerhouse uh, in the mid-major level. So um, his his resume speaks for itself. But just the way you know he led um, you know us and the things he he taught us on and off the court. Um, just I think I matured a lot in my four years there, and a lot of that is thanks to him. So. Um, I'm glad he was able to, you know, get that 800th win and get that tournament win and go out on top, and I'm extremely happy for him. Dylan, before you go, let me ask you about the tournament itself. You break out. You had a huge senior season. You lead Belmont to an at-large berth and then the first tournament win in school history. Temple had really focused on shutting you down in that game. So how special was it for you and your teammates to make history the way that you did? Yeah, I mean, it was amazing. Um Obviously, yeah, Temple did a great job, you know, taking me out of the game at times. Um, so I just tried to do anything I could to help our team win. And, um, you know, a lot of guys on our team stepped up big, some younger guys and um, veteran guys. And uh, obviously they were a big part of that win. And, uh, you know, the feeling after getting that first tournament win, not only for us and the team and uh, for coach, but just for, you know, the, the school and the university as a whole was a great feeling. And, you know, it's, it's definitely a game that we're going to remember for, you know, as long as we live. So. It was awesome. All right, so let me spin it forward one week to the draft. You've done the work. You've been putting in the time. What do you think it's going to feel like to hear your name called and know that you have reached the NBA? Uh, it's, it's going to be hard to describe that feeling. Obviously, uh, it's something that you dream about as a kid and you, you work for you know your entire life playing basketball. Um, so it's definitely going to be a nerve-wracking night, but um, no, real, no real reason to be nervous just because um, you know, you, you've, you're coming to fulfill your dream, and um, I'll be happy to play for any team that wants wants to um, pick me and sees a, a future in me. And uh, so it's definitely going to be it's going to be a roller coaster of emotions type night, but uh, ultimately it's going to be a good and exciting fun night. It's been a great journey, great story for you. Former Belmont wing, two-time first-team All-Conference player, and again a finalist for the Julia Serving Award and the Lou Henson Award. You've got the NBA draft coming up in a week. Dylan Windler, my guest. Dylan, great to have you on. Appreciate that conversation. Have a great time with it. Good luck. I'll look for you once you get to the association. Yeah, appreciate you having me on. All right, speaking of the smack-off, time for another player profile. Eight days until smack-off 25. Eight days until eight different watch parties, at least eight that I know of, are going to pop off around the entire country from Portland. Portland, Oregon, in fact, to Portland, Maine. Now, right now, if you go to my Twitter feed, I've got information for all eight of the watch parties pinned right to the top of my page. Make sure you check that out. If you're in California, Arizona, Wisconsin, Delaware, New York, the aforementioned Portlands, there is a smack-off watch party which is going down in your state. I've got all the deets on Twitter right now. Check it out. If there are other watch parties popping up, let me know about them. And as we continue to get closer to the main event, I'm doing my best to profile the field. So far, I've given the treatment to 10 different players. Brad, Mark in Hollywood, Benny, Tyler, Matt, Mike, Mikey DLC, Lef, Sean the Cablanasian, Broadway Vic. Yesterday, we did Mark in Boston. A number of these guys have shown up after I profiled them, made the call to the program. I like it. Today, let's talk about one of the Wisconsin participants, Caleb in Green Bay. Because if Terrence in Sierra Madre is not the best to never win one, Caleb has got a pretty damn good claim to that title himself. 
But of course, that's not the title that he or anybody wants. This dude is out to shake that gloss, to rip a smack off as his own. It's going to be his fifth event. Last year in SmackOff 24, he threw it all the way back to 1995 with a phone call paying homage to SmackOff 1. I would never miss the first annual Great American SmackOff. I knew that 1995 was going to be all that and a bag of chips, so I'm going to hit this competition harder than Natron means business up the middle on first and goal. Let's get after it, Jim. You know why I take a lot of scuds? Because I get a lot of scuds. And you know this better than anyone. There is a long, long line of callers waiting to take a swing at me like I'm a pinata full of welfare checks, spouting the same unoriginal takes, fat, virgin, lives with his parents. But it just goes to remind everyone that your listeners are not clones of you. They're clones of each other, clogging up the phone lines, jamming up the fax machine day after day for years on end. Would it shock anybody when you open up the fish wrap and see they finally caught the Unabomber? He won't be living in some shack in Montana. He'll be like a mechanic in Escondido wearing an extra sport 690 t-shirt and asking the feds for a drug test drop. Crown Wisconsin. Huge. It was clever. Really clever. Not enough to win, but it was clever and it showcased his creativity. That creativity has made him a top three favorite to win this year's Smack Off, according to the odds posted at Stucknut. Over the past few days, there's been a lot of commotion over the Smack Off odds that you just mentioned. And the fact that your boy is opening the betting as the third choice on the board behind only Brad and left. Maybe Steve knows something about my call that I don't, but he has my number. So not anytime you want to text me that info would be sweet. But Jim, the best part about it is how pissed off people are getting. I'm obviously trying to have fun with it. But you had two phone calls yesterday from guys in the field voicing their displeasure that my ticket is 5-1. to one. First, it was Rick and Buffalo. And before he started calling the show years ago, I was unaware that it was possible to actually hear bad breath. I bet if I ever meet this cat, I could tell you within three seconds who was president the last time he went to the dentist. Jim, this guy constantly tweets about how he's the most interesting guest on the Woodscopes. First of all, that's like saying you're the best kisser in prison. Secondly, the only scope you need to be concerned about is bright green and kills 99.9% of germs. And Richard, as far as the fat jokes go, if I were you, I would not dive too deep into the realm of personal appearance. You look like Scott Van Pelt mated with an Oompa Loompa, then pushed it into oncoming traffic. Now, <laughs> it may have taken five years, but Caleb is finally getting the respect that he deserves... Respect that he deserved back in 2015, in fact, when he dismantled the 12th man ahead of the NFC Championship game. In honor of the Packers taking on the Seahawks in some friendly competition on Sunday, I thought I'd take a run at the tree people who live up there in Seattle. The smarmy, skinny jeans-wearing beatniks and their girlfriends who look like they're auditioning for the inevitable Harry and the Hendersons remake. The people who chain-smoke e-cigs at an arcade fire concert and then judge your lifestyle choices. The people who purposely eat vegan cheese and drink lavender beer and as opposed to the real stuff they make here in the Midwest. The people who worship Chuck Palahniuk and watch Wes Anderson movies with their pants off. Jim, this is a fan base that forgot it even had a football team until the Sonics left. And now all they do is bitch about how much they miss the Sonics. Do you live in Seattle or Cleveland? And now they're going to roll out to the stadium on Sunday in their Subarus and their Fixies. They'll buy their Seahawks program so, A, they can figure out which team is theirs, and, B, learn the names and numbers so they can cheer when someone makes a score point or a goal basket. Oh, we have the loudest stadium in America. We are the 12th man. Yeah, 12 angry men couldn't beat O.J. Simpson 
Watson and one of the Kardashians. So pretty sure you're not going to be Aaron Rodgers twice in one season. So this guy might seem new to you. He might be an up-and-comer to some of you. He's not. He's been making quality phone calls for half a decade. And between that 12th bag call and last year's smack-off call, dude has been putting in the work. And I've always wondered how Adam Hawk has a worse body than me. Bro, I'm walking around with a front porch that's more like a veranda, but you're the one in the chiropractor's office every couple days. You have the voice of a 20-year-old, the hair of a 60-year-old, and the spine of a 100-year-old. You're like the curious case of Benjamin Top Button. Yes, Mark, because you're having so much more sex than I am. The wife lets you hit it once every Boston World Series and only to procreate, but somehow I'm the loser because I'm not married. I've seen more intelligent marks at a timeshare presentation. The K stands for the swing and miss that Chad in L.A. will likely take at me later this week. Is it take your grandfather to work day? This guy hasn't been around electricity since the last time he flew a kite in a thunderstorm. But it's cool because if the Stew Stew studio ever gets chilly in the winter, you can ask Charles Ingalls over there to chop some firewood for the stove. I don't know who's going to drop dead first, me from the cholesterol or the new guy from the sudden dopamine rush of his first Twitter notification. We can all see that Keith Arnold looks like Chael Sonnen let himself go, but I would never say that out loud. Caleb versus everybody. I don't want sympathy. I don't want a pity party. Take your best shot, tough guys. I'll see you in my driveway. Would you rack me? I'd rack me. I'd rack me hard. I'd rack me so hard. Rack him so hard. See you on the 21st, Caleb. And if eight days out, you're still wondering what the hell this thing is, what I'm going on and on about every single day about the smack off, maybe this here will help you. I don't want to do this. I have to do this. This one is for America. USA! You're pumped now. You sociopath. Pitchy bitch with D-minus smack. Gimmicky little snitch. Look me up in the stuck nut take box. Check out my portfolio of dead bodies. Smack off 25. Friday, June 21. Remember, the only way to win is to get in. I'm in the smack off and you ain't. Rack me, Jim. I'll be there. I mean, you people stink when you wash. And the prize, $5,000 cash. And a fair This event is not for everybody. In fact, it's for the best of the best. Bring the entire family circus, because I got a clown suit for every last one of them. We're talking about the upper 1-1000. None of them frighten me, but don't forget about Mona. He needs to pull his pants up and do something productive in the world, like chew a box of razor blades so he would swallow his own fluids for a change. Who wants to walk a chap from Richmond? Even if I did have flesh-eating disease, it wouldn't be that surprising. I'd want to eat me, too. The other cheeses have a party. American cheese sits home uninvited and eats a whole pack of itself from depression. If I'm going to pay $100 to watch Bill Mickelson play golf, you damn well better be topless. I'm Pedro Martinez, you're Don Zimmer, and you better get your decrepit fat ass back in the dugout. Bro, it's a radio show. It's not Fight Club. Settle down, Junior. From Redondo Beach to Rwanda, you're welcome. From getting left back in the fourth grade to filing for bankruptcy for the fourth time. Were you talking about concussions or were you imitating them? I mean, Jim didn't know if he should cut the commercial or slide a credit card between your teeth so you didn't swallow your tongue. They got the gimmicks and that call sucked so bad it might have sucked another Southwest passenger out of airplane window. Pre-record that, bitch. It is officially go time. Smack off 25. 25 is a nice, fat, even number. I might walk off on that one. Tell me how my ass tastes. I want to talk about yeah, Flamey. Um, Radio Wallpaper. Larry Brown. Larry Brown, really? It's delicious.
Larry Brown, really? American cheese. He is Howard Beck. I'm going back there. Howard, what's going on? How are you? Doing great, Jim. You? Good, good. Howard, you have covered this game for a long, long time. Have you ever seen, however, an NBA Finals like this one? Nothing that is even close. This is 22 years on the league for me, and I think it's either 18 or 19 finals that I've covered. And even at the start of this, Jim, like 17 different weird things ago, uh, twists and turns, even at the start, I said this was going to be like nothing we'd seen because we've never had an NBA Finals open with a player of Kevin Durant's caliber, not just out, but out and looming as a possible threat to return to change the entire tenor of the series at any given time. And so we had that just that hanging over those first several games. Is he coming back? Is he not? Is it game three? Is it game four? And, you know, sure enough, this thing's been all over the place since then. And we've had other injuries. Clay Thompson misses a game. Kevin, you know, Kevon Looney has his stuff. Um, and then, you know, for Durant to go out the way he did, as awful as that was, and yet that game, from a basketball standpoint, was as tense and thrilling as you could hope a finals game would be, and all the way down to the, to the final seconds, and with seemingly just Draymond Green's fingernail potentially preventing the Raptors from clinching a championship on the last play, um, every piece of this. I feel is just a, an, an unprecedented uh, version of the NBA Finals. It's been uh, fascinating and obviously at times uh, awful because because of what happened to KD. Right. Howard Beck joining us right now. So in terms of what happened to KD, when he comes back, Howard, you see what he's doing and he's playing really, really well. And in the back of your mind, you got to be thinking, damn, this is what this entire series could have been had he been on the floor. But then he goes down. What went through you when you saw him go down the way he did? I gasped. I mean, I think everybody sitting around me in the press section and a lot of fans, too, just gasped because, you know, you don't know what – you're just far enough from the action. It's not the same as TV, and I want to, like, just spell this out to people. You're watching at home. You've got your nice close-up tight view on your 100-inch, you know, flat screen, and you're seeing vivid details. You know immediately that something looks wrong. For us, watching it live and not looking at the monitor, the first thing you think is, well, he's – He's down, but I'm not sure exactly why he's down. Did he slip? Uh, as Sergi Baca said, maybe his shoe slipped off, he thought. Um, and so it takes a second, but your first thought is, I hope this isn't what I think it might be. Uh, because you know coming back from the calf that the Achilles was, was one of those things that seemed to be looming in the background. And it took a few seconds at least to kind of catch up to, you know, for your thought process to catch up to wait. Is, is that what I think it is? Look down at the monitor. Oh, no, he's holding the lower part of his leg. I mean, and, and at that point, you're just, your heart just sinks. It's, it's the, you know, it was the worst case scenario. And it was exactly what, you know, everybody feared as they were contemplating having him return in the first place. Um, and why the, the Warriors up until that point had been very cautious. And, you know, we can debate up and down forever the decision making and how they got to that conclusion. But obviously, everybody decided. It was okay, and he, he looked great. He looked great when he was dancing in the hallway. He looked great in those first 11 minutes of play. He looked spry. Um, he looked like his old self, and, you know, that that's, it, it's, just, it's just such a tough thing all the way around. We're talking to Howard Beck. One more thing about that. You spoke to Sean Livingston in the aftermath of the injury. Sean Livingston, of course, is somebody who's gone to hell and back when it comes to injuries. What did he have to tell you about that? 
He was very impassioned, and this was on his way out of the arena that night. I caught up with him, and uh, you, you know Sean, one of the all-time good guys of this league, Definitely. and a really smart guy, very thoughtful. And Sean has seen it all because he's experienced it all because his career was very much in doubt uh, after he blew out his knee a few years into the league. So he's very sensitive to these subjects, and he was you know, unsolicited. I mean, I asked him a very broad question, one of these kind of meandering kind of, Sean, how do you guys as players balance? the competitive instincts with protecting your health and whatever. And he immediately went to, listen, Bob Myers and Steve Kerr and this organization would never knowingly put Kevin Durant or any of us in a position uh, to hurt ourselves. Like he immediately went to this, just people need to know these guys, this organization, these people care about us. Um, and he, he was just very sensitive to the idea that people were going to frame this in a certain way, but he was also concerned about, Everything that preceded that, um, some of the discussion, whether it was in regular, regular media, social media fans, uh, uh, pundits, whoever, questioning Kevin Durant's resolve or his commitments and all this because it created, as, as Sean said, a certain kind of perceived pressure to return. And I said, do you think that that's why he came back? Do you think he was feeling the pressure? And, and then on that one, he kind of demurred, said, you know, you'll have to ask you know, Kevin that. I don't know. But he clearly, Sean had that concern that the, the discussion around Kevin Durant before that day might have fed into him deciding to come back prematurely. I was going to say, Howard, where did he come out on that? For instance, I've said that, yeah, he may have felt pressure to come back, but I don't think it was from the organization. I think it was from pretty much everywhere else. Do you think, because we know, we know that Kevin Durant sees that, we know that he reads it, we even know that he reacts to it sometimes. Do you think that in any way influenced his decision? Impossible to know, and I don't want to try to mind read, but you're right to point out that this is a guy who, as we know, is more sensitive than most um, athletes of his stature in terms of being very attentive to and cognizant of the discussions around him. I mean, he goes back at Chris Broussard on social media. He goes back at random fans on social media. Um, For better or worse, he is sensitive to these things. He hears it. He reacts to it. Did that influence his decision to play that night? I mean, we'll never know, or we'll know maybe someday when Durant is back in the public eye and ready to, to speak on everything that's happened. But it, it's just, it, I, I don't know what role that played, or if that was just his own competitive instincts driving him back as soon as he could. And, you know, the medical folks saying, listen, we, we think you're okay. I agree with you. I think that's fair. Howard Beck joining us. All right, so what about Toronto? Where does that leave them? They're on the road, but it's a place where they've had a lot of success. They know that Kevin Durant's not going to be there. How do you think Toronto shows up? This part's fascinating, Romy, because what we've seen in this finals and also in this postseason in general was them kind of shedding all the baggage of prior Raptors flameouts. And it makes sense. This is not the same Raptors team at all. I mean, Kyle Lowry's really the only holdover in the starting lineup from those you know, prior postseasons that everybody always held up. Um, but still, no matter what the composition of the team is, you know that you just let a chance to clinch this thing at home, get away from you, blowing whatever the six-point lead in the final, however many minutes that was. Um, it's all a blur to me now. <laughs> and, you know, do you carry that forward, or do you, you know, do you just you know, shake that off and say, okay, we'll close it out at Oracle where we've won a couple times in this series already. But still, this is the last game in Oracle Arena history. The, you know, combine that with the Warriors having saved themselves, you know, from elimination for another day, 
combine that with the emotions about Durant, everything else, it's going to be as charged up as we've ever seen a game in the finals at Oracle tonight. And how does that impact the Raptors? And is there a seed of doubt in the back of their mind now? Um, you know, we'll see. Uh, but it, it, it's, you know the Warriors going to be really tough to close out. And the, the thing, too, that's changed in the last week is this. All right, Durant is gone. They can't, they will not have even the, you know, the 11-point surge that he gave them the other night. And that was really important for them. And that's a big reason why they won the game, I think. But Clay Thompson missed a game last week. He missed game three. And so he had to get his way back, you know, into rhythm in game four. And by that time, Steph Curry was gassed from game three. Well, this time, those guys are both in sync, as healthy as they're going to be. The Warriors are not thinking about Durant anymore. And, you know, they will, I think we'll see a better version of the Warriors tonight than we saw in games three and four at Oracle. Is, is that enough to beat Toronto? I, I don't know, because the Raptors are still, they've got, I think, the, the overall talent and depth advantage. So final thought, I think, to answer your question, rhetorically or not, I think it's not enough. I think that you know what you're going to get from the Splash Brothers. I think you need something else. So where's it going to come from? Is it going to come from DeMarcus Cousins? Is it going to come from Quinn Cook? Is it going to come from somebody else? Do they need something beyond what they're getting? Probably, um, unless they're going to play a, a better brand of defense, which we've seen in flashes. And the Cousins thing is really interesting because DeMarcus Cousins wasn't outright disaster in game four i thought my god we should never see him get on the court again in this series and i don't know if he was going to if durant didn't go down the other night i think you know i think it was pretty clear that they were going to keep him out of the rotation until they forced uh, were forced to put him back out there and then he played pretty well um he look he, he's he's very vulnerable defensively he's got no ability to, to stop anyone or to stay in front of anyone but he's definitely an offensive option and a, and a release valve for the Splash Brothers. So, yeah, I mean, I think he's still the most likely candidate. I don't think you're going to say, well, we just need a big Quinn Cook game or an Alfonso McKinney game. Um, do you get one more throwback game from Sean Livingston or Andre Iguodala? Maybe. Um, but, yeah, you're, you're right. They're, they're limited in what they can do offensively, but we also know that that backcourt can fill it up and, and those guys could carry you alone and just play enough defense to slip by. I mean, there's, there's a formula there somewhere. We are a few hours off now. He's a senior NBA writer for Bleacher Report, host of the Full 48 podcast, and somebody who comes on the show quite a bit, always kills it. Howard Beck, my guest. Howard, thank you so much. Have a great night. Be looking for you. Thanks, Roma. You too. Take care. Mike in St. Louis. Mike, what's going on? How you living? Hi, Jim. I'm living really good today. How are you? I feel great. I'm living great too. What are things like there after last night? Everybody is losing their blipping minds. Everybody's just freaking out on, you know, on on what's going on. You know, Bobby Plager, you know, I'm thinking about him, you know, and and all the great players that's been here and, and it's not got the hoist the cup and all the players that's, you know, gone off the earth like, you know, Pavel Dimitra, you know, those players. I'm thinking about, about a lot of things as a St. Louis Blue fan today. Ask me anything. All right. Uh, How's it feel to get run? You don't like that call. I don't like that call. Ask me anything. I don't know. How how does it feel to know that Alvin DeLauro just rung you up? Good night!